0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at CalvaryTruth.org. Today, I want to talk to you about gospel saturation. You've probably never heard of that, huh? That's a phrase that has come into use just in the last couple of decades, and uh, what it is, it is just an expression that describes. Habakkuk two four. You know Habakkuk two four, right? You've all memorized that. It, this is what it says: "For the wrath, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea." That, that expression, "the waters cover the sea," means that the, all the seas are filled with water, and the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what's going to take place, and that's why Christ came to glorify His Father. And for us to have our eyes opened. Well, I want us to see what the church has to do with all of this. And uh, this is the purpose of the Great Commission. You know what the Great Commission is, right? Matthew 28:18 through 20. Uh, all authority has been given to me on heaven in, on, in heaven and upon earth. Therefore, Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ is in, is with believers. He's with the church of Jesus Christ as we do this work of making disciples. This is the mission of the church, is to make disciples. And I've said this over and over again. I know you get tired of hearing it, but the church is not a building. The church is people. And as the church does, it fulfills its mission, it is actually demonstrating to the world what the gospel is. In fact, there's a quote I want you to see. of uh, This is Leslie Newbigin. You probably haven't heard of him, but he was an Anglican missionary, was for 40 years in Africa. When he came back to England, he realized that England needed the gospel as bad as Africa, and that believers needed to start living as missionaries. That is to demonstrate the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so... What Newbegin this, this quote, I want you to understand what he means by this. The only possible hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is a big word. It just means way of interpreting. How do we interpret something? How do we come to know its meaning? And he says the only possible hermeneutic, that is, way of coming to understand the gospel, is seeing a congregation which believes the gospel. Now, how, what is it you could see in a congregation that believes the gospel? It's not that they have a PowerPoint or that they meet every Sunday it's the way they live. It's the way they love each other. The gospel produces local congregations around the world who are in community together because of the gospel, and they are on mission. That is the mission of making disciples. And they do that by living out the gospel, by actually demonstrating the gospel by the way we live. I've mentioned to you before in the book of 1 Peter, Peter says to these people he's writing to who are suffering, they're being, they're being persecuted, they're being hounded, and they've scattered throughout the whole Roman Empire, and uh, they're afraid because of their faith in Christ. They've been persecuted. And he says, after t- talking about the kind of persecution they're experiencing, he says, always be prepared to give an explanation of the hope that lies within you. That's really the key to that. It, I, I, how many of you have ever had somebody ask you why you have such hope? Only one person, two persons, three persons, four. Wow, that's a crowd. Because most of us are never asked that question. We're asked other questions <laughs> that might be an opening to the gospel. But these people were suffering, and yet they had hope. They had a, they evidenced hope in the way they lived and the attitudes they had. And so he said, you're going to be asked, why? Why do you live like this? Uh, why don't you find a place where nobody knows that you're Christians and just live in silence and not experience all this persecution? And so he's saying to them, we need to come to understand the gospel in such a way that we understand it is the reason that we have hope in this dark age. You, you do have, you have noticed, right, that the world's falling apart or burning up or <laughs> natural catastrophes of every kind is taking place. Well, what the New Testament tells us is we're living in the last days. Not, not because things have happened, but because in our, in our life, but because of what Christ did. Because of what Christ did, we have entered into the last days. We'll see that in the text we're going to look at in just a second. And so how can we, how can we use, how can God use us to accomplish this task of gospel saturation? You know what a saturation is? You go out into a, into a rainstorm. And you get sopping wet. You get saturated with the water, right? Well, what God wants us to do, he wants us to be saturated with the gospel. In other words, he wants us to so live out the implications of the gospel that people notice there's something weird going on here. Why are you people the way you are? And we want to live in such a way that the only answer to that question is Jesus. That's the only answer to that question. This is the reason we live like this. It's because of Jesus. It's because of what he's done for us. Now, in, in this passage in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11, Paul gives us some instructions on how we can be those kind of people, how we can be the church in the world. And um, he's going to tell us that we it's imperative that we live a certain way. Let me read the passage to you first. It's pretty familiar. It begins in verse 7 of chapter 4 of First Peter. I, what I like about Peter is he's so simple. He really is. He... He puts things together in a way, when you compare it to a way that that Paul puts it together, like, for example, spiritual gifts. Paul lists, Paul has three lists of spiritual gifts. He has one in 1 Corinthians 12, he has one in Romans 12, he has one in Ephesians 4. 20 different gifts. The Apostle Peter says you have one of two kinds of gifts. You either have a speaking gift or a serving gift. And this is what you should do. He's going to tell us that in this text. So I, I love reading Peter because he's so much easier to understand. Now listen to this. First Peter chapter four, verse seven. Peter says, "The end of all things," and it's quite literally this: "The end of all things has drawn near." Something has happened that has brought us into this place. You heard it this morning in Hebrews 9:26, when it says that the "now." If you have a King James Bible, it says, now at the end of the ages, Christ has appeared or been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the high point of the ages was when Christ died on the cross and paid for our sins. That was the moment that changed everything. It's like we're going up a hill. We reach the peak. Christ dies for our sins. And now we are on a completely in a completely different way. Everything before it led up to it. Everything after it flows from it. This is the most important event in all of history is that Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There have been two very high profile people in the church who've fallen into scandalous sin lately. And I got to admit to you that the thing that encourages me the most about that is that Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's forgiveness, there's forgiveness. If everybody here, if we could uh, somehow project on the screen your what you've done in your life that's been disobedient to God, it would be very embarrassing, wouldn't it? Uh, but Christ forgives sins. Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so he says there in verse 7, the end of all things are the high point, the the word end here, "sunteli," means when everything's brought together, the crucial moment that makes everything make sense. This is the event that makes sense of all of history. And so he says, the end of all things has drawn near, the syntelii, the, the, the the culminating thing has taken place. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayers. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love recovers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another. Without complaint, hospitable is when you share what you have with others. And he says, you do that, but don't complain about it. You know, the the word complaint here is a word that is referring to the cooing of doves. It's like somebody comes to your house, you open the door, you invite them in, and and, uh, they're telling you, you know, we'd like to, could we spend the night? In fact, could we spend the week? Uh, Yeah, we have a spare bedroom. Come on in. And, uh, but then, when you're alone, you're saying, "Man, alive! Can you believe this? Can you believe this?" And so, the Apostle Peter is saying, "You got to. This is supernatural. Being hospitable without complaint. And as each one has received a spiritual gift, do you get that? It says each one has received a spiritual gift. And he says, since this is true, as each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it, use it in serving one another." as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And we'll explain that in a minute. Whoever speaks, this is his two categories. Whoever speaks is to do do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God choreographs, quite literally. That God gives strength to us to fulfill the work he's called us to in using our gift and dispensing God's grace. He says, so that in all things God may be glorified. Oh, you mean we don't get credit? No, God is glorified. So that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I remember many years ago, this young man I had known for a long time, he was just a teenager, and he had spoke at church, and his dad was telling me how great it was, how wonderful it was. And so I said to him, um, Hey, that, that's, that's great. I'm glad to hear that, that, you know, that you've served in this way. And he says, Oh, it was all God. And I said, no, if God did it, it would have been a lot better, <laughs> right? If it was God doing it, anything I do, if God did it, it would be much better. But he does empower us. He gives us the strength we need to fulfill his will in using our gift in order to dispense his grace, as he says here. Now, this idea of gospel saturation was coined by a guy named uh, Jeff der Stelt. What does that sound like? It sounds Dutch, doesn't it? Jeff Vanderstelt uh, started using this, this phrase, and it's really caught on, gospel saturation, because we understand that what we need is more than simply to tell people. I, I've told you this story before. I was at uh, the DMV one time, and this guy in a long line, this guy who gets to the front, he's about th- four people in front of me, he wants to witness to the, the lady, the DMV person, And she says, You know, I'm sorry, but I have a long line. I can't really talk about this now. I can't. I don't have the time. And he insisted, and he was reading to her from a little pamphlet. And he read through the whole thing. And everybody in the line wished he would shut up because they wanted to get up there and, you know, do whatever they were going to do transfer the car or whatever. Um, We all understand that just saying the words of the gospel Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, he was buried. He rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, and he was seen. That's the gospel. But well, we got to do something more than simply say the words, don't we, in, for, in order for it to have impact on people's lives. The Spirit of God has to work. Something supernatural has to happen when people's eyes are open to the reality of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so what the Bible teaches clearly by implication is that the most powerful witness is exactly what Leslie Newbigin said. It's the local church. It's believers in community who are living in a way that the only explanation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we should always be trying to do is pull people that we want to witness to into a context where there are believers with, uh, together in fellowship. Maybe over a meal in your home, just having some uh, fellowship and community, that's the best place for them to hear the gospel because they can see it in lives in the way we treat each other. And so the, the gospel saturation is when the church is living this way. Wherever he's put us, he's put us here. He's put us in this community of, of Knights and in Brentwood and, and Antioch and Oakley and Discovery Bay and Byron. This is where we are. And he wants to spread the knowledge of the glory of God in all the world. And our responsibility is live in such a way that people get a clear, honest, true picture of the gospel in our lives and the way we treat each other, the way we live out our lives. I was at a meeting the other day with some pastors over this free market thing they put on in, in uh, Bethel Island. Uh, and they did it first time last year. And they're going to do it again. And they just give things away to people who need it. Brand new things. And um, they were so excited because they participated last year and they saw people see evidence of the gospel in the lives of all those who were participating. Why are they doing this? Because this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. Let him come to me and drink out of his innermost. He was believing in me, trusting me. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He also said, if, uh, if you're tired and weary and worn out, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You see, uh, the way that people are invited to Christ is through the people of Christ. And gospel saturation happens not just when we start bellowing out the words of the gospel. There was a group in town of some years ago, it's been quite a few years ago, it's probably 25 years ago, some people who stood on the street corner at the cross-sections downtown Brentwood, and they yelled at the top of their lungs the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. I never saw one person who stopped and listened to the message. But what they will listen to is the message of those who are living in such a way that they want to know why. They want to know why you have this kind of fellowship. Why do you have this kind of love for each other? Why are you hospitable in this way? Why is it that people come to you and ask you to pray for others that are in need? Well, that means that we, because we care for each other and love each other, we pray for each other, right? Well, listen to what Paul says. Paul is going to give them four things that they ought to be doing. This is ought to characterize our life. The structure of this sentence is real simple. The end of all things has drawn near, which is talking about the coming of Christ and his completed work. The work of Christ included he died for our sins, he lived the life we should have lived and, didn't, and haven't. He died for our sins. He was buried and raised again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father a few days later, 40 days later, and then he poured out the Spirit. The Father, God the Father, sent his Son into the world to save us, and then he sent the Spirit into the world to bring us to faith in the one who died for us and to empower us to live for him in this fallen world. And so Peter says, therefore, this is how you ought to live. And uh, first of all, there's four things. I'm going I'm to put them up here so you can see them. The first is maintain a mindset for prayers. In verse 7, be alert and sober for the purpose of prayers. You know what alert and sober is? It means being in your right mind. It means taking things seriously and looking at reality through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the word of God. Be alert and sober for the purpose of prayers. It's a plural, prayers, and the reason it is, he's talking about occasions to pray. You know, believers get together and pray, don't they? That's something we do on a regular basis. People, people get together and they pray. So, for example, we have a, the ladies have a prayer meeting on Monday morning, and they come together and pray. The men have prayer meetings, as we can catch each other, more than you think actually we, when we're together we stop and pray well he's saying you should, you should have a mindset for prayers in other words you got to think in such a way you have a, this kind of mentality that you're ready to pray you're prepared to pray you have, a, you, are, you have a sound mind and you're alert, you're thinking about the reality of what's going on in the world every time you watch the news you see all these horrible things that are taking place in the world we certainly know that, that people need prayer don't we We understand that we have access to the God of the universe. The throne that God sits on is called the throne of grace. And we're told that when Jesus ascended back to the Father, who he had been with from all eternity, the Father said to him, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then we are told that he is our high priest. And when we pray, we can pray through Christ. Everything you pray in his name, he prays to the Father. And the father answers his prayers. And so Jesus told his disciples, this is how you live during this time. I'm going to be gone. I want you to know this, that if you abide in me, that is, and abide means to trust, to rest in, to be confident in Jesus and what he has done and what he has taught you. And he says, those who are abiding in me and my words are abiding in them. What does that mean? It means all that's contained in, in the word of God, which Jesus has given us, the whole New Testament, it's called the faith at times, it refers to the fact that we have the mind of Christ. And if that's abiding in us, it will guide our prayers. You know, the fact that I know First Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved, it means that I'm not afraid to share the gospel with anybody. God's not going to say, hey, I don't want you talking to him. I don't want you talking to that guy because he's a part of this group in the world that you, I want you to stay away from and never get exposed to them. No, what he says is, I want you to get close so they can get exposed to you so they might catch the same disease that you have, which is faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want you to ask and to pray. God brings people into your path, doesn't he? Have you noticed that, that you're living your life and you, you meet people, and you discover that they need Christ. They don't know Christ. Guess what? All of a sudden, you have a responsibility as somebody who is a priest and an ambassador. An ambassador means you can speak for Christ. That's what Second Corinthians says we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. So we can speak for him. And then you are also uh, his, his uh, priests. You can pray to God on behalf of others. See, priests had access to God. They were able to go into the presence of God. Now, it's true, under the old covenant, it was rare. The high priest could go into the very presence of God once a year. But you get to go into God's presence at any time, day or night. You go into that his presence through Christ, and so you call upon him. So if God puts people in your life that are in great need, they have trouble... They're facing difficulties. Their biggest need is they need to know Christ. And that's the opportunity that you have to explain that to to them. But then you can go to the Father and pray for them. You can actually address God. Do you know there's some people that you know that there's not a person on the face of this earth who ever calls their name before God? Uh, Robin is here today, and uh, I know for certain that there are hundreds of people who've been calling her name to the father she's gone through this surgery and this recovery. I've often thought thought of this about my children, the responsibility I have to actually call their name. I got this from my grandmother. My mother's mother used to name every single one of her descendants, which were about 52 people, and every single day she would call their name to God. I don't know how she did it. A couple of guys, I was talking with somebody today, and they were talking about how it's horrible to forget people's names. And that's one of the most difficult things to remember for people our age, is remembering somebody's name. And he said, one time I even forgot my wife's name. And I said, oh, you never have to do that. All you have to do is say, this is honey. Uh, this is sweetheart. This is sugar babe. You know, Whatever. Whatever it is, you call her. But think of it that somebody in this world, if somebody in this world is calling your name before God Almighty in the name of Christ, and praying for you, God hears. Now, that doesn't mean He always does what you ask for. Aren't you glad? Elijah was glad. You remember Elijah in 1 Kings when he prayed that God would kill him? He said, Just take my life. I can't take this anymore. And he's lying under a broom tree, and it's real hot. And he's in the shade of this broom tree, which is like a big cactus. And he's there, and he's laying there, and he's asking God just to take his life. And God says no. And he has an angel show up, and he speaks to him. And he says to Elijah, here, eat this. He has some food. And he gives him this food. He said, eat this, and then go to sleep. I don't know if that's always good advice. Maybe it is, you know. Eat this and go to sleep. Take a nap. And so he went to sleep. He took a nap. He slept a while. And then when he woke up, the angel said, now, go up on the mountain to that cave up there, and God's going to meet you there. He's going to talk to you. So he did. Remember that? And he was up in that cave, and there was a great wind, and there was an earthquake, and there was all these things. And uh, then there was a still, small voice, a very quiet voice. God was not in the wind or the earthquake But what he was in was a still small voice and he spoke to Elijah and he gave him some new instructions and Elijah went out in the strength of the Lord. I love that story because Elijah was about my age and he went out, he he took off and he served God in the power that God gave him to serve him. And so God wants you to be in the mindset of prayer because you are a priest and you have access to God, you can pray. And uh, I, one time, I can't remember if, if I was by myself or what, was on a motorcycle ride, and there was a, a little booth in this little city up on the foothills and had a sign that said, a prayer for whatever need you have. And they were, they were under this, uh, this uh, pop-up thing, and they're sitting there. So I pulled over. I was really fascinated by this. I pulled over and pulled up, and and I said, uh, "Wow, this is really something." So you you pray for just whoever comes and asks you to pray? Yeah. What prayer? Do you, what church do you go to? Oh, we go to several churches. There we're kind of a combination of people have gone to. We go to different churches in town, but we're Christians, and we can we can talk to God for you. So I shared something with them. I'm not going to tell you what. Not. It was about somebody in the church who was going through a real struggle, and so I. Said, would you pray for this person? And they did. And I thought, wow, isn't that something? Hey, that might be an idea for you guys. Put up a little booth alongside the road somewhere and just put up the a sign saying prayer. And somebody comes in and says, Would you pray for me? Would you pray for my son? He's sick in the hospital. I, I don't know what's going to happen, would you pray for him? Say, yes. And so they pray for me right there. And I kept my motor running on my motorcycle. <laughs> but I, I was just fascinated by that. What a thought. Somebody take that idea and put it, put it into practice. That'd be great. So our temptation is to be distracted by all the things in the world, more so today than ever before. I read this thing the other day, some studies that had recently been done to, that finds out that the average American has a shorter uh, attention span now than ever before in history. In fact, this is how they measure it. We have a shorter attention span than a goldfish. And the way that they determined that was they could determine how long a goldfish could keep its focus on something. And ours is actually shorter. And they were pointing out that like in movies that you go and watch, the scenes are much shorter now to keep your attention. And so it's okay to, to pray short prayers as long as you pray a lot of them. But but you need to realize that you have access to God. You're a believer priest. If you ever want to look at that, 1 Peter chapter 2 tells you that. You're a believer priest, and you have access to the God of the universe. You can pray in Jesus' name. And so it, it, is, a, it is a troubling time. A lot of people are in trouble, and we have access to the God of the universe. We can pray in Jesus' name. And so Paul says, In order for us to live like the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be alert and sober for the purpose of prayers. I can give you a little hint. Uh, When somebody says says to you, would you pray for me, be praying for me, I'm going to be going through this and this and this, why don't you just stop right there and say, let me pray for you right now? Because if you forget your wife's name, you're probably going to forget to pray for this guy. Right? (laughs) And so pray. Pray. Because we have access to God. And I've learned that you can pray anytime. You can pray morning, night, or noon. Because you have access to the throne room of God, the holy place. We are absolutely helpless without God's power. There's not one thing we can accomplish. All of our busyness in the work of the Lord is simply the best we can do. And it's not all that great. But trusting in the living God, calling upon him to work in a person's life, I had a a person this past week who was expressing to me how surprised they were at how God had answered prayer in their life that was really important to them. And they said, I just can't get over it. It's like it happened so quick, it happened so fast. He did exactly what I asked him for. I thought, Yeah, that's how God is, isn't it? He's a prayer answering God. And so Paul says, or Peter says rather. Be alert and sober for the purpose of prayers. That's a part of your mission. Part of disciple-making is learning to pray for people. And so whatever you have to do to get with some fellow believers to pray, do it. If all you do is pray by yourself, you're, you're missing half the Christian life. You need to be with other believers and pray with them over needs in your lives that you can share with one another. And then the second thing he says is manifest Christ's love. Above all, love one another fervently from the heart. Why? Look at the text and tell me why. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because what? Love covers a multitude of sins. Wow, that's kind of insulting, isn't it? You mean there's a multitude of sins among God's people? Uh huh. There is. There's times when we don't do what we know we should do, and other times when we do what we know we should not do. And so, But the wonderful thing about this is he's, what he's talking about in our relationships. People can sin against us, and what did Jesus say to do when they sinned against you? He told them to, he told them to, to confront them. In other words, to be honest with each other about sin. Somebody comes to you and slanders someone that's not there, You're not supposed to listen to it. But then you're not to hate them. You can reprove them. That's what Leviticus says. Leviticus 19 says you can can reprove your neighbor, but you can't hate them. And love covers a multitude of sins. You could become the kind of person that people feel absolutely confident in sharing a need with because they know that you're not going to use it against them. I found out a long time ago, growing up in a holiness-oriented church, uh, there was so much emphasis on living a holy life. And they would tell you how to do it. And, uh, but what happened was, it develops in you this, this thing that you don't, re- you, don't re- you don't see the power of keeping your sin secret. What it does, it keeps you in sin. The best thing that can happen to us when we sin is to have to repent and have to tell somebody about the sin that we had fallen into. And ask them to pray for you. And the wonderful thing is, don't be the kind of person, if, if somebody comes to you and says, would you pray for me? I've fallen into a trap and I gave into this sin. And uh, don't, do, not, do not think that you're the one that's supposed to apply the punishment to their life. In other words, there is forgiveness in the cross. Jesus said, if your, if your friend, if your companion repents of his sin, what do you do? You forgive him. You forgive him. You know, um, there are some sins that that take such a toll on people's lives. I have a very close friend who's fallen into sin lately over the the last couple of years and it became public and he confessed it. And he was very open. He didn't say, well, I got caught in this trap. He said, I sinned against God and there's no excuses. That's repentance. And he said there's just no excuse for this. I sinned in the face of God. Well the wonderful thing is is there's forgiveness. There is forgiveness. And I, if you've lived the Christian life for more than 3 days, you've experienced that. There is forgiveness. When you tell a brother or sister in Christ, would you please pray for me? I'm really having a, I've fallen into sin four times, just I keep falling into this trap. And we can, we can forgive because love covers a multitude of sins. i tell you the evidence of this. It's the way that parents can forgive their children so freely and so willingly And people on the outside that's not a parent, they're looking in, they're going, man, you need to disown that kid. You need to kick that kid on down the road. You don't know how much I love them. And so what do you do? You do what Jesus said. You confront them over their sin. You rebuke them. All that means, rebuke just means that you tell them the truth. You look at them in the face and say, what you did is sin. You've been disobedient to God. And then, if they repent, you forgive them. It's a wonderful practice among the people of God. I I forgot. And so, loving one another is to be something that is visible to the world outside. How are they going to see that? Well, they're not going to see it by simply driving by this building and seeing that some Christians meet here. They're going to see it when we're out in the community together and we're loving each other in just real life situations. Like if you drive by the church property on Tuesdays you see a bunch of people out there giving away food. And they're just doing it simply because they want to manifest love towards people in need. It's not because these people deserve it. It's because they need it. You know what that's called? That's the definition of mercy. Mercy is when you treat people based upon their need instead of what they deserve. Get it? We had a, a, years ago, we helped a family in a church. I was one of the pastors, and we get, the deacons decided to give them some money because they were really going through some difficult times. One of the guys, an older guy, older than I am now, he's, he saw these people at Foster Freeze buying ice cream for all the kids. And he got all upset. He just couldn't believe that they would take this money from the church and then go buy ice cream from Foster Freeze. I think ice cream cones didn't cost a nickel. And he was really upset with that. We see, what did God do when he saved you? He showed you mercy. He didn't give you what you deserved. He gave you what you needed, right? And that's what we're called to do. And so when we love people and we forgive them because they have repented, the reason we don't forgive them before that is we want them to repent. Right? Right? Because we know repentance is life. We turn to God and we receive his forgiveness and we walk in the light. This, this is really an important thing. It's the, this whole thing of loving each other fervently because it's the crown of the, all the activity of the church. All the activity of a local church should be able to be uh, explained through the, love of, through the love of Christ and us loving one another. Why do you do that? Because we love each other. Why do you love each other? Because Christ loved us, that's why. That's why the church, the, way, the, church, the church of Jesus Christ is the way it's supposed to be. Jesus said, remember in John 13, 34, he said, I gave you a new commandment, that you love one another the way I've loved you. Now, he is going to die for them. So if I said, look, God wants you to love each other enough that you would lay down your life for each other, that you would actually die to do good to a brother or sister. That's what Jesus said. Then the third thing is practicing hospitality without complaint. I love this. It means sharing what's yours with others and doing it without complaint, without murmuring. Uh, I'm an expert on murmuring <laughs> and complaining. You know? I mean, I fall in that trap so many times. That's why it's it's good to preach the Bible, because you get get convicted over these very things. I was was kind of begrudgingly working through all of our uh, keynotes with all of our songs on them, because there's a bunch of typos in there. So I'm going through all these one by one, and I'm kind of just muttering under my breath. I'm kind of disgusted that this fell on me, that I had to do this. After all, you know who I am. And I'm, I'm messing with these, these keynotes. And you know what happened to me? I'm typing these things up, and I start getting moved by the words of these songs. They were just overwhelming to me. And God began to just stir my heart about the greatness of the word of Christ. You sang a song today. Uh, Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified. Where does that come from? That's Romans chapter 4. Jesus rose from the dead. you know why that justifies you? Because it's God's statement that he has received the work of Christ on your behalf as payment in full for your sins. Rising, he justified freely forever. Man, it's amazing to be justified forever. Nobody can hack into this account and steal your identity. God justifies you when you put faith in Christ for now and eternity. You're going to be right with Him. That's that's a glorious truth. Well, I'm reading these songs and typing them and making changes and stuff, and I'm getting overwhelmed with these songs. And in fact, I was kind of afraid that if I didn't stop, I was going to be just an emotional rag this morning and just break down, bawling, because it was just so overwhelming. What these words are, we sing, we sing these words about Jesus Christ. Living, He loved me. The reason he came into the world and became one of us is because of his love for us and his love for the father. See, the father loved us and he said to his son, go and redeem these people. And the son comes to the world because he loved the father. But then it tells us in Revelation that he was loving us as well. I don't know about you, but that stuns me that he loves me. It really does. Because he knows the truth about me. The whole truth. He knows everything about me, and he loves me. It's phenomenal, isn't it? And so when you sing those words, and you hear other believers singing those words, you need to realize these are truths. These are glorious truths that should change our life. And so for us to to, uh, share what we have, our homes, uh, the stuff that we have stored, (laughs) and all those things, that's just hospitality. You need something? I, if I have it, I want to. I want to have a heart to say, "Here, take it." Uh, the last thing, the one I want to spend a little bit of time on, and that is dispensing God's grace. I say that because it goes like this: as each one has received a gift, use it as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. I need to explain to you what a steward is. I've done this many times. But I'm going to explain it again. A steward was the servant in the house whose responsibility was was to take the goods that the house owner gave for the people in his household, the, the needs that they had. It's kind of what happens in your house when your wife comes home and the trunk is full of stuff, groceries and paper goods and all that. And then you have to dispense it to wherever it's, wherever it's needed. And so he says, everybody's received a gift, and here's why God gave you a gift. So you could dispense the grace of God to those who need it. Now, I don't know what your spiritual gift is. and um, you know We have a list. Like I said, Paul gives us 20 different gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. Peter says you either have a speaking gift or a serving gift. And he says, here's the thing about it. As you use this gift, you, you must use it as a good steward and say, this isn't mine, but I know what God wants me to give this to you. And so if you, have, if you have the gift of teaching, you teach. You teach the word of God. If you have the gift of giving, you give of your substance to those in need. If you have the gift of uh, exhortation, which just means, exhortation is a, a picture word. It's, it's of a guy walking down a path, and he's all alone, and someone falls in alongside of him and walks with him. That's what a, an encourager is, or an exhorter. An exhorter is somebody who comes alongside of you, and he encourages you as you walk. It always reminds me of that scene when Jesus on the Emmaus Road was walking to, with the two disciples. They had no clue who he was because they had seen him on the cross. They saw him, that he was taken off the cross and buried. And so they knew he was dead. But, and so they didn't know this person walking next to them was the risen Christ. So they walked seven miles together. And Jesus is teaching them all the way. In fact, he teaches them through the whole Bible. He goes from Moses through the prophets, teaches the whole Old Testament to them. They were familiar with it. And he shows how the Old Testament was talking about him. The theme of the Old Testament is Christ. And that in that revelation was the fact he he was going to be executed, he was going to be buried, and he was going to be resurrected. And that's exactly what happened. And they were so surprised about it. You wonder, how can you be? You know the Bible. You, you are Jews. You read the Bible. They had to memorize the, the Torah by the time they were just 12, 13 years old. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine memorizing three verses in a row? And so here Jesus is telling them the whole story, and he's encouraging them. Because he's telling them the truth. They didn't understand what had happened. They thought, we thought he was going to be the Messiah. But then he was crucified. And Jesus says this was God's plan all along. Well, if you have the gift of exhortation, that's what you do. You get with people and you encourage them. That's what you want to do. If you don't want to do that, it means you don't have the gift of exhortation. But you do have a gift. And like I say, you could take the time to look at all the 20 gifts that Paul talks about and the, and the guidelines he gives for exercising those gifts. That's fine. However, what you really need to do is just love people and serve God and dispense his grace, and you'll see that there's a certain pattern to it. And if you have the gift of teaching, you'll see times when people, you will notice when people need to understand the word of God, and you'll take the time to explain it to them. If you have the gift of exhortation, you will notice when people are down and discouraged, and you'll come along and lift them up and encourage them. And so this is what he says to do. There are six principles here regarding spiritual gifts that I I just want to, you could write this out if you wanted, but I'm just going to give you this list. The first is every believer has a spiritual gift. How do I get that? Because he says, as each one has received a spiritual gift. Every believer has a spiritual gift. Secondly, he says, your gift is to be used in serving other believers and people outside the church as well. So it's, it's been given to you so that you can minister to others. And your, your area of service should be primarily according to the kind of gift that you've been given. And then when you use your gift to serve, you're dispensing God's grace. This is so apparent when you experience it when when somebody uses their gift to to minister to you and it's like a big gulp of the grace of God, God giving Himself to you, exactly what you needed. And uh, by the way, that's why the church needs to be in situations where they're seen as a community at work for Christ. That's the best way. That's what. That's what. Uh, that quote was all about. The only real hermeneutic to understand the gospel is a congregation that believes it. A congregation is actually living in this world as those who have believed and are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people think the gospel is just to get people saved. You know, Christ died for your sins, he was buried, rose again. That's just for unsaved people. That's not true. The Bible is really clear that not only do you get saved by the gospel, by believing the gospel, you experience the ongoing work of salvation by believing the gospel. That is sanctification. You come to have a deeper and deeper appreciation and love for Christ through the gospel. And that's why we sing it. We sing it over and over and over again. Jesus died for our sins. Why do we keep on? Man, we all get it, right? You don't have to tell me again. I've heard it a thousand times. It's because we need to keep preaching the gospel to our hearts. Because we start living in total contradiction to us, to it. Why did, God, why did God accept you? Why did he welcome you into the family of God? Why did he embrace you as one of his children? It's because of what Christ did. That's why he sent Christ. It, it, John 1 says, he came into his own creation, and his own people did not receive him. But as many of them as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. When you receive Christ, you become a child of God, and you enter into the family of God. You begin to experience the benefits of the grace of God as it's being dispensed by his people. And then finally, uh, God's going to supply what you need in order to serve. We're constantly dependent upon him. We can't do a thing in, in ministry apart from him supplying to us what we need. This way, remember in John 7:37. you remember that verse, John 7:37, uh, that Jesus said, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, in the context, what he was talking about, if you thirst for life, for eternal life, come to me. He says, whoever's thirsty, come to me and drink. He who is believing in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's the term he used at the woman in the well, remember? He said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink and I'd give you living water. What is that? It's the Holy Spirit. That's what what John says in explaining that, what Jesus said. He said, he spoke this about the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Christ had not yet been raised from the dead. He had not ascended to the Father yet. The first thing Jesus did when he went back to the Father was he poured out his Spirit. And we're told that the Father sent the Spirit and the Son sent the Spirit so that the Spirit of God would come and he would bear testimony to who Christ is. It's really interesting. People can hear the gospel a thousand times. I had a, I have a cousin, two cousins, actually that heard the gospel over and over again. They heard it from me many, many times, and they heard it because that's what I thought my biggest responsibility to them was to just constantly tell them the gospel. And they heard it from their fathers who were preachers of the gospel. Forty-five years later or so, in both their lives, different different situations, the Spirit of God opened their eyes to the truth of the gospel, and they believed it. And so... We have to understand that we have rivers of living water in us that flow out of us into the lives of other people. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can guide us in using the gift that God's given us in order to meet the needs of people by dispensing his grace into their lives. So we need to ask ourselves, are we, is God using us for gospel saturation? Is the gospel, in all the places we live, we represent these communities all around us. That's our domicile. That's where we live. It's our country. Are people around us, are they being saturated with the gospel? Can they see the gospel in practice? Not just just hearing the definition of it, but are they seeing it in our lives, our life as a community, our lives of, of a group of people who love each other and pray for each other? Are they seeing it? And the only way they can see it is if we actually experience it and we live it out before the, the, the communities that we live in. That's the only way. And it's what we must, what we must do. And this is why Paul gives the, or Peter gives these, these instructions. I need to have a mindset for the purpose of prayers so that that's a part of my life that I'm with, praying with fellow believers I have to be, I have to love people, especially within the body as well as without the body. I need to love them above everything. I need to have a love for people, the same kind of love Christ has, because love covers a multitude of sins. I actually know Christians who wouldn't dare to talk to certain kinds of unbelievers because they despise their lifestyle so much, they wouldn't even want to take a moment to speak to them about the gospel. That's absurd. That's absolutely ast- absurd. If you're a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, I challenge you this week to go share the gospel with a Democrat. <laughs> if, if, you're so, if you're so dyed-in-the-wool convinced that people are worthless because they live a lifestyle that's, that the Bible has said you shouldn't live, then you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is for sinners. That's what we are. That's what we were, and that's what we are. And so we need, to, we need to, to not only demonstrate the gospel, but to speak the gospel so people can hear it. Charles, Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a big battle with a group of people. Uh, they were called the hyper-Calvinists. And what they did is they said, we don't, we don't offer the gospel to anybody who has not already demonstrated that they're repentant of their sins, and they turn away from their sins, and they want something from God. Then we give them the gospel. And Spurgeon did just the opposite. He offered the gospel to anybody and everybody who would hear. God sent his son into the world to die for you. And that's what he did. And he was buried and resurrected. And he ascended back to the Father. And if you put your trust in him, he will save you. He'll bring you into relationship with him. He'll reconcile you to God. And he will give you treasures that you can't even measure the worth of. Internally. It's like a river of life flowing out of you into the lives of other people. And so there's nobody in this world we shouldn't speak to. There's nobody in this world, no no group of people that shouldn't hear the gospel. White supremacists should hear the gospel. Black rebels should hear the gospel. And everybody in between. And we have the gospel. And the wonderful thing is when you see a real sinner... I mean, somebody who's a rebel by all definitions, they're considered sinners by Christians. When you see them hear the gospel and believe it, it's a glorious, glorious thing to see. Remember Jesus having dinner with the with the Pharisee, and they're reclined at table. He's, he's there on one elbow uh, eating dinner with the Pharisee, and this woman from the street comes into the... It was probably a, a large... Uh, area in front of their home like a courtyard, she comes in there and starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And the Pharisee is absolutely indignant. How could he be called a Messiah when he, does, he, he doesn't even know this woman is a sinner? And then remember what Jesus said to him? You notice the difference between her and you? I came in, you didn't offer me water for my feet. You didn't offer oil for my, my hair. You didn't do anything. You didn't, this was just no, normal courtesy in that land. But ever since she's been here, she has been washing my feet with her hair. That's the lowliest servant would wash your feet. And she has bowed down and she's weeping. And, and, and the reason is, he says, because she has been forgiven much. Jesus knew who she was. He knows who you are. And he knows what he has forgiven you of. And he knows that there are people, if, who, if they knew the truth about you, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with you among God's people, like the Pharisees. You know, there are modern-day Pharisees. There are some Pharisees around who think you should never share the gospel with anybody until they get their life straightened out. Well, What's the gospel for? The gospel is for people who don't have their life straightened out. It's for Everybody. And so we proclaim the gospel to whoever will hear. So that's who we are as people of God. And it's only as we live this out will there be gospel saturation. Will there be gospel in in these areas where we live? They'll see it by our lifestyle. They'll see it by the way we we live together and we treat each other. They'll see it by the community that we are because of the work of Christ. That's what we have to be. And that's why we need to we need to keep on telling ourselves, wait a minute, the church is not a building, it's people. I am a member of the church. as The apostle Peter says in this very book back in chapter 2, you're living stones. We're living stones. We, we are, God is building us as the temple of God. He's dwelling in us and dwelling among us. Did you know the Bible says every time we come together like this, we meet together as Christians to hear the word of God, that he's in our midst in a special way? that Christ is here. Isn't that something? It's glorious. And so I just want to encourage you, get out with some fellow believers and live the Christian life and do obey the, the Spirit of God in in the way that he has told us to do. Keep prepared and ready and have purpose that you, you can pray. Somebody says to you, would you pray for me? I remember a uh, Francis Chan said he was uh, calling on people in the Tenderloin and knocking on the doors. He was just saying to them, I, my name is Francis Chan, and I'm doing this and this. He said, uh, is there anything I can pray for you about? And he says, he got this one guy who said, yeah, you can pray for my dog. The guy was being sarcastic. He says, you can pray for my dog. He's sick. As a big old dog there, a dog or some kind. He says, you can pray for him. And so Chan says, what's his name? He told him. He says, okay, let's pray. <laughs> and He prayed for his dog. Why not? If if God used Balaam's ass, that is his animal, his bur- animal, a burden bearing animal. If He used him to speak to Balaam, do you think he could he could he would be okay with God? If you if a person said, "Would you pray for my dog, or my animal, my horse?" One time, Judy's dad uh, had a cow that got sick. And so he called the pastor to come out and pray for him. She wasn't given any milk. And they depended on this milk. The pastor came out, and the guys that work for her dad all sat on the fence to watch it. They thought this was the funniest thing they ever saw. This pastor comes out and lays his hands on the cow and prays for her. (laughs) And at his funeral, I heard this story. This guy, his name was Shorty. He was sitting on the fence watching this, thinking it was the craziest thing he ever saw. And God healed the cow. And it had such an impact on him that he started talking to Olin, and her dad about the gospel. He came to faith in Christ. And he'd been serving Christ for 30 years when he died. See, God is powerful. He is glorious. And he humbles himself to be among us. That's, the, that's what Jesus Christ pictures for us so clearly. That he humbled himself and became a man, a servant. He didn't think being equal to God was something he had to cling to and hold on to for his own benefits. He was willing to, to humble himself and come into this world as a servant and serve God and serve us by dying for us. You have a great heritage. You have a great message. You have a great role to play. God wants, is, wants to use us uh, to saturate this area with the gospel. I don't mean by t- saying it over and over again. I mean by living it. By living it, demonstrating it in the way we live. The way we forgive each other, for example. The way we get past our animosities towards each other. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And that's supernatural. Let's pray. Our Father, as we leave this place, I pray that uh, you you would cause each of us to be so aware of this mission that you have sent us on, to represent Christ as your people. And I pray that we would want to be together in all kinds of settings and situations and demonstrate to this whole world what a glorious God you are. Father, work in us and work through us. Accomplish your good purposes, I pray in Jesus' name. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.